Shikea Williams called the fall of 2020 the time when she had her squad back, since all six of her children were living in the Clovis area. But a shocking crime shook their squad and Kea's family is still waiting for justice. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crimelines. Welcome to day two of 12 days of Crimelines. I've chosen a bunch of cases off my suggestion list. A lot of them are a little too short for a full Crimelines episode but there are cases often that need more attention, which is what this case is, absolutely needs more attention, more media presence. This case came to me through my friend Eric, who hosts the podcast True Consequences. He covered this case, and Chikea's mother reached out to me to cover it as well. I'm going to present the case first, the way I usually do, And then at the end, you are going to hear an interview I did with Eric. It's a short interview where we discuss the case a little bit. So a huge thank you goes out to Eric for his help with this episode and also to Chikea's mother, Frances. Chikea Williams was born in March of 1982 at the Cannon Air Force Base in New Mexico, which is about 15 minutes away from Clovis, New Mexico. Her father, George, was from Peoria, Illinois initially, but he was stationed in Cannon. That is when he met Frances, Chikea's mother. They married and started a family, and Frances had grown up in Clovis. So when George was discharged, when Chikea was still pretty little, the family settled down in Clovis. Chikea loved growing up there, just like Frances did. She spent most of her free time with her nose in a book. She loved reading. She was also very outgoing. And she made friends everywhere she went, even as an adult, which is something that can be really hard to do. Chikea also loved children, really loved them, which was a good thing since she went on to have six of her own. I think that might be one of the things that I thought about with this case when Eric first told me about it, because she and I have this in common. We both have six children. But when I talked to Francis, I learned Shakea actually has five boys and one girl, which is also the same as me. Sometimes we don't know what draws us to cases, what really connects us with them or with a victim. But in this instance, I'm going to just guess that it's because we had this in common. Chikea worked in the food industry to support herself and her children, and she pretty much spent all of her free time with her kids, her family, and reading. In the fall of 2020, 38-year-old Chikea was happier than ever. Her oldest child, which was her only daughter, had been living out of state and had just moved back to New Mexico. Chikea called her kids all six of my heartbeats, and they were finally all together all the time. On Sunday, November 29th, 2020, Chikea and her kids were at her mom, Frances's apartment. That wasn't something that was uncommon. Chikea and Frances were very, very close. If Chikea wasn't over there, she was calling to chat. This was a big family Sunday dinner, and one of Chikea's sons had a friend over, a teenager we are going to call James, that is not his real name. Frances was in the kitchen cleaning up, and she could hear Chikea 
and the kids laughing from the spare bedroom. It was a little after 9.20. Chikea's 19-year-old son said that they were all just hanging out when James, the friend, suddenly jumped out of the bedroom and into the hallway. He laid down on the floor, and it was obvious something was wrong. Not knowing what James had seen, had heard, had known about, Chikea's oldest son grabbed his two youngest brothers and pulled them into the hallway and to the ground as well. Chikea's 17-year-old yelled, what's going on, as he did like everyone else, and dropped. Someone yelled, somebody's shooting, and get down, when Frances felt the whole apartment shake from where she was in the kitchen. When the shooting stopped, one of the boys yelled, where's mom? The hallway that they were in was narrow, but Frances pushed past the kids, who she knew were okay, and got to the bedroom door, which was closed at this point. She managed to push it open a little and saw why it was shut. Chikea had collapsed on the other side of it. Frances could see Chikea lying on her back. Her arm was up and there was blood on her wrist. And Frances could hear her struggling to breathe. So she forced her way into the room the way a mother would, while others called 911. As Frances held Chikea, begging her to look at her and not to go. Chikea took her last two breaths and died in her mother's arms. Frances continued to hold Chikea, but her attention was turned to the kids who wanted to know what was going on and if their mother was okay. She wasn't okay, and Frances didn't want the children to see her like that, so she told them to stay out. The 17-year-old did make it into the room, but they were able to keep the little ones from seeing what happened. I hope that Shakea knew before she died that all of her kids had gotten out of the room safely, that they had looked out for each other just like she taught them. The paramedics came around 9.30 p.m., and it was only then that Francis let go of Shakea. There was nothing they could do for her, so the investigators came in. Frances's home was now a crime scene, with her daughter's body being left in the bedroom for several hours. Shakea had been shot two times, once in the wrist and once in the chest, and the shots were fired from outside of the apartment. But there was still a witness to all of this, her son's friend, James. James told the police that he looked out and saw the shooter in an early 2000s Chevy Impala with a black stripe. When James saw the car and the shooter, he ran out of the room. Shakea's children followed when the shots were fired. Shakea didn't have a chance. The alleged shooter, who was named by James, was a young man known to the family. We are going to call him. Benjamin. I don't usually change quite so many names in episodes, but these names have not been cleared for release by the police. Benjamin is considered a person of interest, even if they're not naming him publicly. 
The driver of the Chevy Impala was an older man who James was also able to name. Not only did James recognize the car and the shooter, he had actually been texting Benjamin earlier. He texted that he was at Francis's apartment and said something like, if you want smoke, it's at Francis's. There are various ways to interpret this text communication. On the one hand, it could sound like James was basically saying that he was at Francis's if Benjamin wanted to fight. However, we don't know that James was setting himself up as a target because Chikea's family does hold space for the theory that James was setting them up. Without knowing the previous conversations and having the context, we don't know this, but James did see the car pull up and he saw Benjamin get out of it and he headed for safety, so he did know something was going to happen. So the police had the name and description from James, and they also had some information from neighbors. The neighbors said the police never came to talk to them, but two of them did come forward on their own. For their safety, I'm not giving any identifying information on them, but I will tell you what they saw. One neighbor came down while the police were still at the apartment and gave a description of the shooter the person who had gotten out of the car before aiming into Francis's apartment. And this neighbor described Benjamin. Another neighbor came forward to the family directly later and said they looked out when they heard a shot and they saw a gray four-door sedan, the same car Benjamin's girlfriend's father drove that night, take off. Francis's apartment wasn't the only one hit in the shooting either. A neighboring apartment did have a shot go through it, and it narrowly missed hitting someone. From what the authorities have told Francis, they interviewed Benjamin a number of times, including on the night of the murder. They said he cried as he insisted he was innocent and that they found him initially credible. They said they did not do a gunshot residue test on him. Francis asked them why not, and they told her that things don't work the way they do on television. They seriously used the CSI effect as a defense for not swabbing a suspected shooter's hands when they picked him up not even two hours after the shooting. GSR tests are not the end-all be-all of an investigation. We know that. They have limitations, but they are a piece of a puzzle, and they're a piece we do not have here because they opted not to test him. According to what Francis was told, Benjamin was questioned multiple times over the next couple of months, and so was the alleged driver, who was Benjamin's girlfriend's father. Both of them denied having anything to do with it, and the police said they never had enough to charge either of them. You might think James, as an eyewitness, would be enough for them to move forward on this case, but unfortunately, James stopped cooperating shortly after naming Benjamin. He even deleted all of his text messages with Benjamin. He is known to be hanging out with him and his group again. Much of what we know about the investigation does come from what Francis was told. Eric, the host of True Consequences, did a FOIA request on the case, 
and was pretty much just sent the incident report. But based on some questions Francis was asked, we do know about two other angles the investigators explored. The first one was a fight that had occurred two weeks before Chikea's murder. I'm not exactly sure how Chikea's boys' names came up in this, but Benjamin was allegedly one of the people in the fight, and the police were specifically asking about Chikea's sons. Now, Chikea's boys did see the fight, but they didn't participate in it, and they said when it was over, whatever issue everyone had was done with. They had even shook hands after the fight. The police did push Chikea's boys to talk more about this, but they really didn't know anything. And I'm telling you, these boys are invested in getting answers for their mother's murder. They've not shied away from answering questions truthfully. I don't believe personally that they would hold anything back or that they know something they haven't already said. Even when I was on the phone with Francis for the interview, one of the older teens was chiming in with some input. They want this solved. Now, the other angle that they explored had to do with some incident at the apartment complex. The family was asked about a party that was held there, but they knew nothing about it. It's not even clear how the police think it may be connected. But the family, when they do a party, it's generally just the family. They have a big extended family. So they were not at all connected to whatever that was. It's been hard to understand and difficult to understand for the family why nothing has happened in this case, especially when they do have this eyewitness and they have James's initial statement. So Francis kept calling and going to the station to ask for updates and information to see where they were. She would talk about pulling phone records to try to get those text messages back. She would talk about looking at social media because they were getting tips. The family was from other people saying that there were things online that were implicating Benjamin in this. There was even one from Benjamin around New Year's Eve 2020 when he said, I killed their mom. And it wasn't just evidence of the past crime that Francis was trying to bring to the police, but also ongoing harassment and threats, which are crimes, that were being directed at Francis and Chikea's kids, particularly as Francis kept pressuring the police and when she would go to the media. A lot of the social media accounts that were harassing and threatening her and the family would be deleted almost as fast as a new one showed up. Francis sent me some examples of these, and I personally don't understand why it's not being taken more seriously by the police, especially when it went from words to actions. Chikea's younger kids live with Francis since her murder. One day, the family was at a park for a family member's memorial service, and while they were gone, someone came through and shot at their apartment again. They didn't know about it until they got home and saw a bullet hole in the bedroom where the boys slept. They, of course, called the police, but the neighbors said they didn't hear anything, not even a gunshot. But there was a bullet and a bullet hole, so obviously it happened. 
but no one saw or heard a single thing. And now this is allegedly the same caliber bullet that killed Shakea. The family ended up being forced to move, not just out of fear of another attack, but because the management of the apartment complex received so many complaints from neighbors. The neighbors were scared of being collateral damage as the family was clearly being targeted. Now, remember, they're the victims here. They've done nothing. They've lost everything. And now they're being forced to move. Four and a half months after Chikea's murder, Francis went to the police to report some more of the social media posts and texts that were coming from a relative of Benjamin's, and these messages were threatening. Frances wanted to talk to someone face-to-face, but all she got was a detective talking to her through a hallway intercom. He then told Frances that Chikea's case had been marked inactive. She asked, what does he mean by inactive? And he said, it doesn't mean the case is closed, just inactive. Everyone had lawyered up. They had no more leads to follow, so they were not investigating it actively anymore. Frances was worried that her past and Shakea's past with drug arrests may have influenced the interest in this case. But Shakea was a decade out from all of that, and she had just been living her life, raising her kids, working hard. There was no evidence that this crime was related in any way to drug or gang activity, but even if it was, who cares? Chikea would still deserve justice regardless. But it's very likely that night Chikea was not the target. She paid with her life for someone else's feud. Frances left the police station after being told the case was inactive, and she walked right on over to City Hall, and she ended up speaking with the Clovis city manager. She finally got somewhere with this because he would talk to her. Now, he's not law enforcement, so he didn't know much about the case, and he couldn't directly help her, but he was at least able to open a line of communication. Frances got a call from an investigator with the police department, and he asked her for patience, and then the captain called to follow up. This conversation, as Frances recollects it, didn't go well. She said his tone was disrespectful from the start, and then he used the words, well, you need to, and Frances was absolutely uninterested in hearing the rest of that sentence. She told him she didn't need to do anything. She held her daughter as she died. She brought them evidence, not just incriminating statements, but evidence of ongoing harassment. Her grandsons were in danger, and from where she stood, it looked like no one cared. So the time for telling Frances what she needs to do, what she needs to know, what she needs to understand, Those days are gone. And this is the reality of what some families face when they're trying to get answers and justice. So right before Frances hung up on the captain, she remembers him saying something about 
being unable to solve the case if she was out there making accusations. Now, at that point, Frances had actually been holding back a bit. She didn't want to put too much in the media because of the investigation. But now he's basically blaming her for interfering in some way. So she has nothing left to lose. And she was able to get additional media coverage, including on podcasts. And now Shakea's story is being heard by tens of thousands of people in two dozen countries. Now, I did ask Frances what her hope was for those of you listening right now. She wants you to remember the name Chikea Williams. She wants you to know how happy she was, how she would have given you anything you needed, even if what you needed was a dose of honesty. Chikea was a real person. She was an individual. She was a loving mother. Frances still sees her when she sees her grandchildren smile. And Chikea's children also have her heart. Frances works long hours in spite of health problems to support the kids, and they look out for her, making sure she takes it easy. And they learned how to take care of Frances because they watched their mother do it. Chikea's daughter started a change.org petition to get justice for her mother. I'm going to leave a link to it in the episode description. And anybody with information on the murder of Chikea Williams, you are asked to call 575-769-1921. And with that, I want to introduce my interview with Eric from True Consequences. I'm Eric Carter-Landin, the host and producer of True Consequences podcast, which is all about true crime in New Mexico. And how did you get started making your podcast? Well, it kind of happened uh, as a result of some inspiration. You know, my brother was murdered um, over three decades ago, and his killer was never brought to justice. And so I kept saying to myself that somebody should do something about all the murder that's happening in New Mexico and the lack of justice. And eventually I just decided that I would do something. So I created the show to somewhat give a platform to people in my and my family situation and giving them the opportunity to tell their story in their words on their terms. One of the things I really like about your show is when I scroll to your sources, it almost always says police documents. So do you do a lot of FOIA requests? I do, yeah. It's really important for me to get as much information as possible because you know, a lot of people will, when they're producing true crime content, kind of recycle a lot of the information that's already out there on other podcasts or on investigation discovery. And I really try to get direct source information as much as I can uh, where it's possible. So how did you come across this case of Shakea Williams? Uh, somebody who saw me on, I think it was either on Kendall Ray or listened to Sarah Turney's episode about Jacob. And they're in New Mexico, they're in Clovis. And they reached out to me and said, hey, um, I know you don't know me, but I have this friend of mine who was murdered and nothing is happening with the case. Would you be willing to talk to her mother about it? And I agreed. And I talked to Miss Francis and scheduled the time to go out there. You know, it really struck me as I started to look into the case, just the lack of, of any information that was out there. I even did a FOIA request. And I think I received like a page and a half or two pages. Uh, from the police department. So there's really not a lot of information out there. 
I know a lot of what I was able to get out of this was because her mother did media and got this in front of the media. She found people willing to listen to this story, which is really an unbelievable one where you have an eyewitness who said, that guy did it. Mm -hmm. And... And, well, he told us he didn't do it. Okay, well, good. Uh, good for him. Let's get in there and investigate. And I feel that Miss Francis has had to go investigate herself, which I know some families find themselves in that position. Yeah, it's it's really sad. And I, I felt so bad for her, you know, because a lot of family members in that situation, they've never had to navigate this type of world. It's, it's really for in it sometimes, you know, and, and I experienced the same thing. So I definitely had a lot of empathy for her knowing that she has a really hard battle ahead of her. And and it's really important that Shakaya's story gets out there because the more people know about it, the more pressure it puts on on the police and on, on the people that are supposed to be investigating this to, to do what they need to do to do the right thing and, and put this person away. That's really one of those cases that is completely solvable. I do feel like they have waited on some evidence that they shouldn't have waited on. I Obviously, they didn't do the gunshot residue tests. Mm-hmm. Once that evidence is gone, it's gone. They are slowly going to start losing some of the digital evidence because that's not necessarily stored forever. Yeah. And I really do hope that this media attention through podcasts and news locally really pushes them forward to get this case moving, moving forward towards a resolution. Yeah, I hope so too. I know that uh, Shakea's daughter had put together a petition on change.org. I don't know how much traction that's gotten, but you know they have asked the attorney general to step in because it seems like the district attorney at this point really has no interest in, in moving forward. And I don't know if that has to do with you know what the police have turned over or, or any of that, but I do know that there's that petition out there. And so I think the more people that can share Shakaya's story and sign the petition, you know, that that's definitely going to make an impact. That's the best thing we can often do. I know that we sit and we listen to true crime and we empathize and we think about these issues. And sometimes there are actionable steps we can take, whether it is donating money for a private investigator or even just signing a petition to let people know that you heard this story and you care enough to want to see something happen here. And I do think this is a case that needs to be taken over or at least uh, looked over by someone Mm -hmm. above the Clovis police. I agree. I agree with you 100%. So are you familiar with the Clovis area at all? I am. Yeah, I've been there several times and I used to go there for work. So I'm pretty familiar with Clovis. So one of the things I was looking at when I was looking at Clovis is it kept making me think of Gallup, New Mexico, which I looked into when I did a different case. And one of the issues with that case, the um, victim's sister told me, was that the problem was like the a murder happened and they're investigating it. And within 24 hours, another murder has happened and they mm-hmm. have to go investigate that. Is Clovis similar with crime or do you think it's safer? Uh, all of New Mexico is struggling with crime right now. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, there's some legislation that has really impacted the way that pre-sentencing holding has has happened historically. 
and and you know there was a lot of promises about things happening with this it was called bail reform basically the idea is that if you're a nonviolent offender uh you're going to sent, be sent home pending sentencing to just kind of wait be on house arrest and and wait for your your trial date and it seemed like a good idea it was a way to quote unquote ease overcrowding in our jails and prisons it has not worked the judges are supposed to look at some kind of excel spreadsheet <laughs> to make a decision as to whether somebody is going to be held uh, in jail pending sentencing or held at home. And so uh, we're seeing a lot of that recidivism because a lot of people who are being released are violent offenders, are um, people who use weapons whenever they are committing crimes. And so, you know, we've seen a, a dramatic increase in the number of homicides in the entire state of New Mexico. Yeah, I just saw it was just a few months ago that New Mexico is considering reconsidering their bail reform, which voters were behind until they realized that it wasn't just nonviolent offenders that were being released and that something has definitely just not worked out the way it was presented in the beginning. Yeah, and there's been a really big increase in crime with younger and younger perpetrators, murders specifically, and robberies. Um, we're seeing a lot of these younger kids are using social media like Snapchat, um, Instagram to lure people to a place where they can be robbed. And if they don't have what they're looking for, they will shoot them. And so, you know, I've covered a few cases like that. I think this this is kind of similar where you have somewhat of a younger person who's responsible for this. And and, you know, they are using social media to intimidate the family and to intimidate others. Yes, I've definitely seen that. Uh, Ms. Francis sent me some things in my email that were appalling mm -hmm. that they have been sent. And um, I will tell you, they are appalling. I'm obviously not going to play them on my podcast because that's not really what we do. Just take my word for it. But I wonder if there is a disconnect with the police department in understanding the cyber nature of crimes and evidence. From my understanding, the family has been sent social media posts and videos that are going up. They're, people are pulling them and saying, have you seen this? And it is more evidence. And Francis goes and brings it to the police and they don't seem to know what to do with it. I, I think that has to do with a number of factors. It is a rural community. I think that their resources are, are pretty, you know, pretty thin compared to a city like Albuquerque or even Santa Fe for that matter. And so I think they are struggling with the modernization of the community. And, and I feel like Clovis and, and other communities in New Mexico are, are really behind the ball on, on those kinds of things. And, you know, if for nothing else, I think involving the state government in this, at least there would be access to greater resources for the police department, which I think would be really important for this case. So much of the evidence, like I said, is digital and if they're not pulling those records, they're losing them. And I think it's time someone who knows what they're doing with digital evidence comes in and there's nothing wrong with a police department not knowing how to do something or not having the resources. It's what they do when they come up against that that really makes the decision here. Are they going to say, well, we can't do that, therefore we won't do that? Mm -hmm. Or are they going to say, we can't do that, but the state lab can? Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's really important. You know, it isn't about uh, pride or, you know, looking less than as a department. It's it's more about doing the right thing for the community, doing the right thing in a situation like this. I mean, 
for God's sake, Shakaya's kids today, you know, they just had their one year anniversary of, of losing her. And it's been extremely challenging for them to to grow up without their mom and to to see her go in such a violent way. It's just tragic. Well, thank you so much for giving me some of your time to talk about this. And can you let my audience know where they can find you? Absolutely. If you want more information on True Consequences, you can go to trueconsequences.com. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook at True Consequences Pod and on Twitter at True Cons Pod. And my entire library is available wherever you listen to podcasts. So you can find me anywhere. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you, Charlie. I really appreciate your time and I appreciate you covering Shakaya's case. Thank you. I know that it means so much for Ms. Francis and and for the entire family. So I can't thank you enough for stepping up and, and tackling this one. 